So I invite you to turn to Matthew 9. Here is Jesus, the snapshots of the mission of Jesus as the Messiah. We've seen him doing many things. We've seen him essentially in three particular scenes. That he's God who's moving with tremendous power. That is, that he is able to heal paralytics and cast out demons with a word. And so people are categorizing who is this man who descended from that mountain to teach us such great things with authority. Is that authority of his words always matched by the power of his hands as he would lay his hands on the sick or speak to spiritual realities? And then two, Jesus also demonstrated himself in that he is the God who has tremendous love. He loves spending time with people that are offensive, sinners and tax collectors, people that should not be spent time with. Jesus likes that. He likes being around sinners, you and me. He loves it. He loves you that way. It doesn't make sense. The whole point here is that it's translating into a series of questions. So the question naturally was, as they came to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees says, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? They don't understand that. And so now we're having another question this morning where they come to Jesus with a different question. This is not the scribes or the Pharisees. Now it's the disciples of John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was a man given great power in the Holy Spirit. And he laid out the red carpet for the coming of the Messiah. For the Messiah himself, the man written of of all these psalms. And here we are this morning looking at the mission of the Messiah. Messiah means anointed, one who's given the Holy Spirit, John says, without measure. And therefore he is able to operate in these kind of miracles and signs and wonders. And so John lays out the red carpet, but even him, he himself, is not entirely sure what is the mission of Jesus. How do I categorize him and understand? And the people who are following John have the same question. And so they come to Jesus in Matthew 9 with a question about fasting. Matthew 9, 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Well, that's interesting. So Jesus answers their simple question with a series of three images, metaphors, proverbs. Pinches of wisdom to say, here is why you're asking that question. Here is your misunderstanding. You're not understanding who I am. You're not understanding the mission of me as the Messiah of old, the one who is written of in the scrolls. The question they come and say, why do we, those us men who follow John the Baptist, we fast, those other devoted um, spiritual religious type people, the Pharisees, they fast, 
Now, why do all the people that follow you, Jesus, why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they giving themselves to this spiritual discipline of what the Old Testament talks about as afflicting yourself, depriving yourself, giving privation toward various things, food, water, so that you would devote yourself more to laying hold of God, to pursuing God, to doing what all these psalms we just sang about do, seeking to approach the Lord in his holy place. How come we all fast, but they don't? The Pharisees had a tradition of fasting maybe two to three times a week. And it would make a lot of sense that the people who followed this other school, John, John the Baptist, this school of thought, him, disciples of John, would have probably fasted around the same, two or three times a week. And so they come and say, why don't you do this? And Jesus responds, it hits so perfectly to how we should understand him. And then if we can understand this, understand who he is, what he was about, then we know who we are. We know what this church is for. We know the mission as we follow this Messiah. Because what we are claiming to be is these in the story. We claim to be the followers of Jesus. We don't follow the Pharisee system. We don't follow John the Baptist. We follow Christ. This is a very relevant question. Why? And Jesus' answer hits to the fact that there is something new. There is something new to what he is doing that is unique to all previous before. There is a new life, a new power, a new authority in the gospel given through the incarnate Christ that has never been seen before. It's very similar in the way that a new song can strike your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I had this really bad uh, scenario years ago where I could not stop listening to a Van Morrison song. It's very bizarre. I don't know why. I think it was the Domino one, you know, like where he's like, Domino. Uh, it sounded just like that, actually, yeah. Um, I just couldn't stop listening to it. I really couldn't. I don't know why. And I'm bad like that. Uh, it, Heather and I talk about it. And... Uh, I'm just bad like that. I ruin songs. I like one song, and I will kill that song. I will destroy it. I will wrap my hands around it and just pet it to death. I'll say, oh, that's such a pretty song, a pretty song. And it's just, it's ruined. I'll never be able to hear the song the same again. And right now, uh, I have a few in my mind I've been listening to, probably five or six times this week. I've just, one song, I just, I don't know why. But it's the newness, when that song comes to you, um, it just, it's, it, it's idiosyncratic. There, there's a type of you, there's you in this, that the, the voices, the sounds, it's, it, just, it just strikes you in a way that is something. It's nostalgic. It brings back memories. It produces an emotion of calm or produces an emotion of um, um, adrenaline or or success, or, you know, there's different types of music, does different things. And when you get that dopamine hit from that song, that becomes your new song. It's a song you're going to, well, if you're like me, you're going to destroy that song in a few more weeks. Uh, so you might as well enjoy what you have. But actually, the University of Michigan actually did a study on this. They wanted to know why do we play songs on a loop? Why do we repeat like this? They pulled over 200 some people and they found 
ultimately it comes down to the pleasure principle. The more pleasurable a song is, the more you return. You return to that song because you know its consistency. You've sung this song before. You know the meter. You know the notes. You know how it's going to sound next. And you know what it felt like last time you sang that song. And so you go back. Because why would you want to sing a new, new song? This is your new song. You don't want a new, new song because you don't know if that new, new song is a good song. But you know this old, new song is a good song. And so you keep going back. And you keep going back to your old new song. And then the malady of human existence. The same reason you can live near the Rockies and be bored. The same reason you know you eat that one more potato chip and it's not good anymore. And the same reason you, once you get to, that once I play it 66 times and Heather says, are you crazy? And I'm like, no, I'm not. This is normal. Then I hit 67. I'm like, this song doesn't sound good anymore. That is the malady of our human existence. That we will find the dropping off point. We will find the ceiling of the new song. And then it will become an old song. It will be too common. It won't be exciting anymore. I know exactly what that sounds like. The next note. I know what the next note is. I know what the verse is. I know that when I lay out this series of verses, it produces these theological truths deep to my mind that percolate to my soul and produces exaltation and glory to God. But if you tell me that truth long enough, it doesn't produce that effect. It has a negative feedback loop. Diminishing returns. And now Jesus is saying something. Jesus is saying, fasting is good. Why don't you and your disciples fast, Jesus? And essentially his answer is, I'm playing a new song. I'm doing something different and fresh. They're confused about this because they think this is just all that's left in the playlist. This is on their iTunes account and this is the song we play. Every disciple of anybody fasts. We cut ourselves off. We afflict ourselves and seek God and seek God. And then when we do that, guess what? It works. You find God. For Jeremiah is right. If you seek God with all your heart, he promises, you'll find me. They don't understand, though, why they're fasting. Because they don't understand two things. They don't understand themselves and they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand themselves, and they don't understand Christ. See, they don't understand themselves, and the reason that we should fast is that we are made of an inner and outer. We have an inner man and an outer man. Ephesians 3, 16 says, Paul wants them to be granted with strength, with power, through the Spirit of God in your inner being, or your inner man. This inner man is your inner spiritual man. Your outer man is your body. The physical appetites of our body are connected to the spiritual appetites of our soul. And the spiritual appetites of our soul are connected to the physical appetites of our body. They are connected. They are related. If you manipulate one, you manipulate the other. If you manipulate the other, you manipulate the first. 
So therefore, the spiritual discipline is natural. Don't eat. If you don't have an appetite for God, if you cannot hear his word, if you have no love, if you have no joy in him, then stop finding joy in other things. Immediately, stop at all. Don't watch TV, don't eat, don't scroll on the internet, just stop it all. Cut it all off and famish yourself. Make yourself hungry. And then fill your appetite with good. Find the joy of the Lord. This is pretty basic to understand. This is the point of fasting. The discipline, of course, Proverbs 27, 7 says, One who loathes, one who is full, loathes honey. But to the one who is hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. If you are super full, the sweetness and the goodness of honey has no appetite for you because you're too full. You're too full of other things. But if you are hungry, you would eat anything. If you truly are hungry, you would eat anything. So therefore, stop eating with your body. is a disciplined practice of all these men of old. Stop eating with your body. And every time your body screams to you, I'm hungry, feed me. You say, okay. And you put your hand on the fridge. And then you take your hand off the fridge. And then you say, why am I hungry? Oh, I'm fasting today. That outer man telling me I'm hungry is reminding my inner man that I am looking for the Lord. I am looking for the living God. And therefore your outer man has trained your inner man. And you have fasted appropriately. And so they say, why aren't you playing this song? Why aren't you doing it this way, Jesus, with your disciples? Jesus lays out the scenario that the reason we fast is so that we can feast. It is not the end of itself. You fast so that you can feast. So they don't understand the point of fasting. And then they also don't even understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not a religious leader. He is not John the Baptist. He is not some Pharisee. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in all his glory and splendor and joy. And people, though cloaked in humanity, and though he only had a transfiguration on the mountain one time, it broke through from time to time where they could see the glory of God in the meekness and fleshness of this humble servant of humanity. And every once in a while, someone would realize, no, no. And they fall on their knees and say, my Lord. Like Peter on the boat when they catch all those fish. Well, maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe a school of fish was just passing through. How come we have so many fish in all that net? And Jesus immediately, just, and, Paul, and Paul, uh, Peter just falls immediately on the, the deck of the boat and says, my Lord. My Lord. Because he commands fish. There could be other reasons, but that was the one for him. And so these men are interacting with Jesus. And all the other disciples, the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, they understand Psalm 42, 1 to 3 says this, For as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. I don't want religion. I want to know God. 
I want the living God who is alive and active in my life. That he sees me and knows me and I know him. I want that experience. Therefore, my tears will be my food. I will look for this living God. And so they fast. And so they come to Jesus and say, why don't you fast? Why don't your disciples fast? And the reason is, the glorious reason is, they've reached the goal of why the psalmist is eating his tears. They have met God. When they sit and dine with Jesus, they are doing the very thing Psalm 42 is looking for. To be in the presence of the living God. There is no need to fast. They are sharing a meal with God now. In the Psalms, always, as we sang this morning, Psalm 42 included, and many more, they are looking to go back to the temple. Oh, if I could be a doorkeeper in the house of God. For one day, they say, I want to go to the temple that is his house, the place of the living God, where he dwells. And you would go there and you would offer a peace offering in which you would eat some of it and then you would offer some of it on the altar as a tribute to God, as though God were eating a meal with you. You would share the same food. That was what they were looking for. And here are his disciples reclining at a table with Jesus himself. And they say, why don't you fast? Why are you eating? Because I found him. I only not eat just to eat with him. That's why I don't eat. And Jesus is there, and it is time to eat. It is time to feast. It is time to laugh. It is time to be happy. We are not religious in this sense. We are not sad. We are not dour. If we do these things, it's only because we look for the joy of God. And when we have that, we find the mission of Jesus, the Messiah. Do you have people in your life who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ at all? And do you enjoy eating with them? Do they understand the joy of knowing? It is so amazing to be able to explain to someone through a manner of living that you know the living God. That there is something of you, that God is alive in you, and that when you eat with them, it is not just one simple Bible track of here's three points for the gospel. Here is my life. I recline with you for hours. That's how Jesus lived. That's why they bring these indictments to him. The only previous question to this question about fasting, which isn't eating, is not why aren't you eating, but why are you eating with them? So Jesus is doing two things wrong by both people's accounts. The Pharisees don't like it that he's hanging out with sinners, and the others don't like it that when he's hanging out with them, they're eating. But Jesus lived that kind of life. Full of joy, happiness, potent, and hanging out with everybody he could. Yet still being the man of Psalm 1. 
who we are told in counsel is not to take counsel with the wicked, nor even stand with them, nor sit with them. Jesus can sit with them because Jesus will influence them. They will not influence him. What a testimony to your godliness. Have you grown? Can you influence others? Or are you influenced by them? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The same spirit in you rose Jesus from the laws of condemnation and literal death. No one else comes back from that. He is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he actually came back into creation from resurrection. And therefore, by virtue of that resurrection, it is all his. All authority in heaven and earth is his. That same power that conquered the grave lives in you. How scary it would be to sit across the table from someone that doesn't believe in Jesus like you. What growth it must be in our life that we would sit across the table with someone and love them in Christ. Influence them to the glory of Christ. But that isn't a simple argument or intellectual exchange. You have to have this joy. You have to know him. That's why Psalm 42, he's so passionate about saying, I need the living God. And so here is Jesus demonstrating all of that. And he won't be put in any category. So Jesus, this is remarkable to look at him this way. He is so conservative. And he's also very, very liberal. Jesus is very biblical. And he's very, very liberal. Remember, chapters ago, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is beginning to explain everything he's about ready to do. And in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think for a moment that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from all the law until all is accomplished. It's extremely biblical. So annoyingly, fundamentally biblical. The kind of guy that you sit across the table from and be like, why is that guy so Christian? Why is he always quoting the Bible? Jesus would be that guy. He would be annoying. I mean, they didn't, a lot of people didn't like him. But he says, for the reality, don't ever think that not even one, one iota, which is nothing more than this with the pen, would pass from this law. Except at the same exact time, and this is the beauty of the mission of the Messiah, how it should influence us as a church. What is the culture? What is the flavor of us as a church? We should also be not pegged in that category so tightly. Here is Jesus, not only being incredibly conservative, you would say, biblical, you could say. We're going back to the oldest of old, the Old Testament law, saying all of it's legit. It's very important to me. Yet even in that law, that he's saying, not a Yoda should pass away. There's Leviticus 23, in which the only legitimate commandment, where everyone was actually commanded to fast, was on the Day of Atonement, once a year. Okay? So the law says, everyone fast, one Day of Atonement, once a year. Isn't that interesting? And then you have these scribes and Pharisees, even John Baptist's followers saying, now Jesus, why don't you fast three times a week? Well, because Jesus knows his Bible. The freedom of not being legalistic is being bound by the law. Then you're free to be liberal. You can be legalistic and liberal. Jesus is both. And so therefore, Matthew 11, 
The accusation continues, and Jesus says this in Matthew eleven nineteen: 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you said, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom will be justified by her deeds. So here is Jesus' reputation. Very biblical. Very conservative. At the same exact time, he gets the tag of living a joyful life, enjoying stuff and food and wine. And then when he does it, they all label upon him a drunkard, a sluggard, one who hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. Again, the two questions previous, why are you hanging out with them? Why don't you fast? Matthew 11, the accusation is, you're eating too much, you're drinking too much, and you're also hanging out with all the sinners. They come together for him. This is how Jesus did his life. And so he would be remarkably biblical. He is God. He wrote the book. Thank you very much. It is his law. And it says to fast once a day. And the rest of the time he's enjoying a dinner with friends. Because he says wisdom will be justified by her deeds. That the heart of all the law is love. And if you have a picture of God's word and a picture of theology or religion or Christianity in such a way that it excises you from others, you've missed it. The whole thing you've missed it. Because all the law is for love. To love God and to love men. If your understanding of the law keeps you from loving men, you need to go read it again. For Jesus is saying, I know the law and I know they're sinners and I love them. So I will spend time with them. This is the wisdom. This is the mission of Jesus Christ as our Messiah. Very liberal, yet very biblical. Not fitting in any of these two categories. So how could we possibly mirror this kind of wisdom for us as a church? How can we live this way? To carry on the mission of Messiah as we walk through to say, this is not, this is not some church guru plan. This is not what we think we should do here at New Life. This is Jesus. This is his mission. This is his purpose. To be so saturated with the word of God that we would be liberal. That we would actually be liberal. My job as a pastor through all of this, of course, again, is in Matthew 13, 52. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasures of what is new and what is old. That if I can, by God's grace, scroll the playlist, and I promise you, I'll try my best not to play the same song over and over again. Right? But my job is to scroll the playlist, to bring out the old, apply it to the new, create freshness by this. Properly understanding God's word produces liberty. And so the characteristic for us of a church, finally closing, is James 1.25, which is this. But the one who looks into the perfect law, which is the law of liberty, and perseveres, not only being a hearer, but a doer, James calls the law the law of liberty. If we understand as a church the words of God, we are free to live outside of those boundaries. Once we know where the boundaries are, we're free to live and love liberally. And that affects the whole entire culture of a church. And that doesn't fit very well in all the little categories people have. Jesus never fit. And this is actually how he advanced his mission, the mission of the Messiah, that he would actually fast and feast. And there is a day in which he said he would be taken away and that they would fast again. 
And so that's true. And we still fast. And we lay hold of God. And when he answers, we stop immediately. We celebrate and feast. Enjoy that kind of new wine. For the image is new wine. That even when he was taken away, he is the living God. He's come back. In the book of Acts, the newness of it all. The story, the story, the wedding of Cana. There is this wine, and it's okay wine. And they're drinking it, but they run out. And then Jesus says, give me some water. And out of water, he makes new wine. And everyone drinks it. And the whole point of new wine, the word there for new wine is glucose. It just means sweet. It's brand new, good wine. It's sweet. It's good. And then they say at the party, everyone puts the best wine first. And you saved the best wine for last. It's all on purpose. Jesus is saying it was all of old. All of these old psalms and prophecies and all the law was just old wine. You would think it'd be the first was best. But here's Jesus with this new wine in a new wineskin. Doing something brand new by the Spirit. And here in his resurrection... The day of Pentecost, the newness of it all is that the effectiveness, the, the, the potency, the influence, what wine does is it influences you. The influence of this new wine is that it is so much more powerful, so much more potent. The percentage value of this wine is very intoxicating. But it's poured out by the Spirit of God at Pentecost. And so therefore they all start preaching the gospel. If we all were like that, They all start preaching the gospel. And what do they say? These men are full of new wine. That's all. They're just full of new wine. It's on purpose. Because the newness of what Jesus is doing did not end in this story. That he is again not on the cross. He is the living God. He pours out his spirit. (sighs) That we would all have the sweetness of that new wine. Let us pray. Dear Father. Lord, we pray for the sweetness of that new wine, Lord. That you would pour out your spirit upon us all. Lord, that you would relate yourself to us and give us joy. Lord, I trust this prayer. We trust this prayer in faith right now. That you would, as a result of this prayer now, from this moment to the weeks and days ahead, that you would fill us with joy. Fill us, Lord, that we would even have our own tears as food, so much that we would at least have the living God be alive with us, Lord. Speak to us. Relate to us. Be in and among us. And help us, Lord, to love one another. Help us, Lord, to feast together, as we will only in a few minutes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.